0: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I hadn't really thought about what I was going to say after that point. <laughs> You've got it there. Um, you wrote yeah. it <laughs> so so when, when we talk about naval history, there are names that come up a lot. HMS Victory, yeah. HMS Warspite, SMS Sean or well, maybe that's just me. But <laughs> yeah. but um, we're going to talk about a, na- a ship that is it's named after somewhere you've probably heard of. I'd be surprised if you hadn't. And I've got Ian Ballantyne, who is a, a journalist and historian who's written extensively about naval history and has filled a small chunk of my uh, bookshelf and Kindle, including books, Hunter Killers, The Deadly Trade, and Killing Bismarck, as well as several ship biographies, such as, as the aforementioned war, spite, and victory, but he's here today to talk to us about his other book, one of his other books, HMS London. So, Ian, um, welcome to History Hack.
1: Thanks for uh, inviting me on. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, the nice. naval history community on Twitter is very small. <laughs> so um, it's fair to say that we, I mean we have we know each other from yeah from there as well. I've seen you. You have seen me. Yeah, by the wonder of social media. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it's it's interesting what you say about. Um, names you know some names are uh, illustrious very well known and uh, covered in in battle honours like like you know I've written about warspite and also victory mm. two line of battle or battleships uh, that uh, are very very famous but also in a series I did um I've also uh, written about uh, HMS London and another famous battleship HMS Rodney but yeah you know we're here to talk about London today so I think as as you're uh, suggesting you know it's not a name perhaps that springs to the lips of, uh, let's say, that small community on Twitter. But it's a very interesting one, a very interesting history, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and it goes right the way back, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the first Londons are coming around in a naval conflict that I think only me and Charlie White talk about, which is the, uh, the Anglo-Dutch Wars and right. um, Civil War and the Restoration.
1: Yeah, I mean, the uh, the first London's, uh, the first two were converted merchant ships and they were basically provided to the king, King Charles I, um, as he was. And uh, they were provided by the City of London, which was expected to fund these vessels to add to his, his fleet, which was more in the business of, I would say, privateering uh, than it was and um, going overseas to search out. Uh, riches in terms of spices and other things and also trying to colonise various parts of the world than it was in being a formal fighting navy although it was there to protect home waters against people like the infernal Dutch who were possibly not many people understand this but it was actually the Dutch that were our most formidable enemies in the uh, 1600s um, and although the civil war came along and the first uh, sorry the uh, the London of that time uh, a 40-gun ship was one of 10 armed ships, um, those 10 armed ships that had been provided, and it was part of, obviously, the King's fleet. But the, when the time came to decide who to support during the Civil War, London and 11 other vessels out of 16 decided they would be for Parliament. And so they surrounded the other five ships and said, what are you going to do? You're going to be for Cromwell's mob. <laughs> are you going to support the King? and they they supported the king strangely enough so yeah i mean that's where it starts but then it's as you say the anglo dutch naval wars uh, were uh, incredible um, clashes at sea what mainly in the, in the channel or the north sea or off of near london off, off off the coast of uh, eastern england and so the early london's the two the two in fact the more than two but the first three certainly were were involved in that. and the first purpose built hms london uh was uh, a vessel uh that was actually constructed um under the aegis of Oliver Cromwell. And uh, yeah. yeah, so that 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 idea of having a navy and investing in it really took root, I would say, under Cromwell, who formalised the navy as a fighting force and it, as you'll probably know yourself, introduced fighting instructions and all sorts of other things, disciplinary acts. Um but one thing that was common to the King and the uh, the Lord Protector, was, uh, although they didn't invest in warships, they they often didn't keep them very well. And between wars, uh, they would not look after them. So Dockyards fell into disrepair and so did ships. And London fell victim to that as well.
0: Yeah yeah i mean anglo dutch war dockyards not being maintained and dockyard defenses not being maintained and living in in Gillingham. right we don't we don't talk we don't talk about that <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well that where well you you're talking about as a part of the world is very much involved in it wasn't it in uh, in all this business back then the, the, against the dutch mm. yeah but i mean that the third london was um, is actually an interesting ship because um by 1665 when she was um, only 9 years old they decided that you know, the Dutch were on the rise again and that they had to invest in the Navy. And so the London was put into refit uh, at Chatham to try and restore years of decay. And then in March of, that, of 1665, unfortunately, when they were putting on board guns to um, go off and fight the Dutch again, she blew up. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, and that was probably due, due to uh, ammunition hold, handling possibly the powder. That's probably the guilty party. But that killed um, 300 people instantly. That was just off Southend-on-Sea, as it is today. And only 19 of the crew survived. So that was a a massive blow. And um, so by this time, obviously, King Charles II was was back, the Restoration Navy as it was then. And um, uh, within a week of that London being blown up, um, an offer was made by the Lord Mayor and Alderman of London to build a new one. And the King was obviously delighted that the 4th London would be... and, and, And... was was going to come about pretty quickly because he needed ships now all of a sudden so he he called that one the loyal london but then when the money wasn't quite so so forthcoming and they couldn't quite raise enough money he he got upset with them and took the loyal bit away and she just became hms london <laughs> uh so yeah i mean that there was an early london uh involved in um a battle uh called the battle of the four-day fight that was um loyal london was this this next london and uh which was a uh, uh, quite an immense uh, clash, and uh, 4,500 dead or wounded and taken prisoner during the battle. And um, they uh, that that vessel actually um, saw uh, 81 years service, which uh, I would say rivals Victory' oh, wow. length of time. Yeah, but they kept rebuilding her. I mean, that's one of the things they did with the wooden ships. They just uh, yeah. they neglect them, rebuild them, send them out to war. They get damaged, they come back, they neglect them in the dockyard, and then they repair them <laughs> and send them out again. So that's that's how she lasted 81 years. And uh, that was the the last of the uh, the pre, um, shall we say, pre Revolutionary Wars and Napoleonic Wars uh, uh, vessels um, to, to, you know, wooden wall fighting vessels to actually be in service. From memory, we did do, I think we've
0: done a podcast on the third London explosion. I have yes. to go back through, uh, yes. through our back catalogue. I believe we have done one on that one. I don't think I was on that one, but I, I do remember it being done. I think again that was Charlie because it was uh, Stuart Navy.
1: Yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, I mean, one of you... the things that yeah I did for the new the new paperback, I'm going to do a a, a book um, bit of book PR here. But one of the things I did for the new paperback of HMS London because I wrote the book originally in the early two thousands and it was published mm. in two thousand three. But um, when we were in uh, lockdown, when, you know, during that cursed pandemic, I, I said to Paladin Books. It's worth updating uh, the HMS London book because there's going to be a new HMS London, which will be a anti-submarine frigate in the uh, in the yeah. 2030s, and and also the turn in uh, our history uh, the, from the end of the Cold War back to confrontation with Russia and and also rising China. Uh, I thought that it was quite fascinating for me because the London of the cold, the latter Cold War, the end of the Cold War was one that I went to see uh, aboard, and it was quite fascinating to think that that vessel which is now a Romanian warship, was decommissioned from the Royal Navy in the late 90s and then bought mm-hmm. by the Romanians, is now facing the Russians, as is the Royal Navy, in an aggressive sense. So the 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 end of the Cold War, which uh, we'll come to later, which l- the last HMS London played a role in, that's all come full circle. So I said, we ought to do a book that gives it a, a different intro uh, and then some reflections at the end on uh, the way, the new London will will be back in a an, a new Cold War and a confrontation with China. Uh, and but also, I wanted to update other elements of the book. And so one of one of the things I did was do an appendix on the uh, the uh, the London that blew up off Southend on Sea, uh, because I got in touch with the um, perhaps you had them on your your podcast. I don't know the archaeologist divers that were going down there.
0: Yeah, I'll try try it on. Rapidly trying to Google who we had. <laughs> I don't
1: remember, <laughs> yeah. remember Well, I talked to a guy called Steve Ellis, and he and his team uh, from uh, about 15 years ago started diving on uh, HMS London, the one that's off South End, and trying to recover artifacts because there's going to be a museum in South End on Sea That was the plan. And um, so he and his uh, team went down there, brought all this stuff up, and um, but the most uh, dangerous thing they discovered, uh, the most interesting thing they discovered, was a World War II German sea mine, which had uh, oh, really? its record Yeah, which its reckoned had been dropped um, off Chatham. Uh, and you'll have to forgive me. I've been to Chatham, but my geography is not brilliant. But it was dropped off Chatham <laughs> and somehow, or dropped in the wrong place, and ended up in the wreck of uh, Oliver Cromwell's uh, HOS London. And so when Steve and his comrades were down there looking around in the silt, and the mud, you know, um, they found this parachute mine. And so they um, had been working for ages on this and didn't notice it. But once they found it, they called in the, the Royal Navy and they sent yeah. a team of explosive ordnance disposal experts. And fortunately, they, they got rid of it before it blew up, you know, and killed somebody or destroyed what was left of the wreck. So that, that was a, a close call. Uh, that actually happened uh, shortly before, if my memory serves me correct. It's, it's all in the book. Uh, shortly before the um, the pandemic, so mm. I don't know if you, you discussed that, but that was quite a quite an interesting
0: turn of events. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to the old episode. Yeah. It's been uh, yeah. it's been quite some time, yeah. uh, and it was uh, with David Davis. Right. Uh, um, I Haven't got the date or the thing. No, but, no. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll dig it out. I'm yeah. it this bit out, but I'll send you. I'll
1: yeah. send you the link. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, it's it's interesting to think that um you know that um belatedly you know we we, we think as you said earlier about talking about names we think about um victory and other ships and not the London but actually the London's um, artifacts the treasures that um, that wreck you know off uh, Southend is is uh, yielding for this museum will actually be quite astonishing and it would it would have been a pity if it'd been blown up by a uh, a sea mine but there you go we managed to avoid that but, um yeah so the london that we we talked about there uh that had 81 years service uh came through you know the anglo-dutch naval wars and actually survived uh until uh 1747 which is quite extraordinary um was um the last of those uh pre uh, i would say nelsonic navy uh londons and and the next one was uh uh originally a 90 gun ship and then a 98 gunship uh, built at Chatham, actually alongside yeah. HMS Victory and commissioned, uh, sorry, not commissioned, authorised for build uh, in 1758. So built alongside Victory in the same year of Nelson's birth. And in that vessel's uh, story uh, spanned quite a bit of the, uh, the Revolutionary Wars, uh, the War of Independence, the American War of Independence, first of all, the Revolutionary Wars and the uh, what we call the Napoleonic Wars. That's the next one. That's the. Uh, yeah. I try to keep track of all the numbers of these ships. So the fifth London,
0: because <laughs> she because um, she goes from Chatham to the Chesapeake and has yeah yeah um, not directly, but she ends up at the Battle of the Chesapeake, which yeah. has um, unfortunate repercussions for uh, one of my heroes, General Lord Cornwallis. Right, and it,
1: what are you you're you're big into the um, well the Siege of Yorktown and things like that? Are you or...
0: kind of? I, I weirdly, I went to Cornwallis Secondary School. Right, um, and then I'm, I've ended up living completely by coincidence. I now live on Cornwallis Avenue. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so, coincidence. So you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, 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 It was to be honest, it was the first flat that came up when I had to move out. So, uh... <laughs> and do you think that was a
1: good a good sign for um for for you for the future? I must have that flat.
0: It's got called Avenue. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it was um syn- young synchronicity, but yeah, yeah, the well, yeah. back of the Chesapeake. The, It's a massive problem for the the Royal Navy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's strange. Um, uh, London, HOS London, uh, the 98 gunship, obviously got the Battle Honor, um, Chesapeake. uh, But it wasn't that Battle of Chesapeake, uh, the one that's on the Battle Honor board. The one you're talking about was the later Mm. one, so there were two. And and so, yeah, you're right. Uh, London uh, in 1780 was the flagship of Rear Admiral Thomas Graves, who was appointed the commander of the North American Station. And you know, uh, as you know well, but maybe I'll just give a few details on it. There was at the time. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, because you're probably a, a greater expert than I am. But there were the British land forces were split into two armies. One was based around New York under Henry Clinton, and the other in Virginia yeah. under your your great hero uh, Cornwallis. And C was the link. <laughs> well, maybe not your hero, but uh, a fascinating character. Uh, C was the vital link, uh, as it is so often in uh, in this period. It happened in the Peninsula War as well. When, when the Royal Navy, aside from fighting uh, the French or the Spanish, or whoever at sea, uh, does a kind of logistical link, taking troops and supplies and preventing the enemy from getting troops and supplies and, in this case, yeah. siege guns into uh, into the Chesapeake to help uh, the American rebels and French forces there besieging Yorktown. Yeah. So basically, uh, what was happening was that um, the Royal Navy with its uh, North America fleet, was trying to stop the French from reinforcing the siege forces at Yorktown, who had the uh, um, Cornwallis' troops bottled up. So they were supposed to dominate uh, the Chesapeake uh, Chesapeake Bay and stop uh, the French being resupplied, etc. And so there was a battle in March 1781 and that's the one that provides the battle honour that the London, H.S. London, is proud of. And so There were seven French ships that were carrying a couple of thousand troops that were going to land to reinforce the American rebels. But uh, Graves and his vessels managed to stop that uh, happening and the French withdrew to Newport. Um, And uh, so they weren't going to give up. So they reinforced their fleet. They brought up ships from the Caribbean. They got ready. They had siege guns, they had troops. uh, And uh, so they they tried again. And again, uh, the British under uh, Graves... Uh, tried to stop them but he he made uh in this second battle of um chesapeake he made the error of hanging around and being a bit too perfectionist about making a line of battle and he thought the french yeah. were just going to line up as they did so often in those uh, those years until people like samuel hood and um and rodney uh, admiral rodney and nelson came along and decided they weren't going to stand for this gentlemanly passing of two lines of uh wooden wall uh, line of battle battleships so he he hung around thinking he was going to have one of those gentlemanly battles and everything would be settled and in fact uh, he took too long so when they eventually clashed with the French uh, they made a, the two fleets made a v-shape and the French and the the enemy the British enemy the French were able to concentrate more firepower at the head of their line and so the London 10th in line of the British side had uh, the guns knocked out and 20 casualties and the Damage wasn't too great to the British and the French withdrew and then the British went went away and made the error of I mean you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but they I mean it's in the book. But I mean they they withdrew yeah. from the bay, they had a council of war, and then they went back to New York to, to get repairs, etc. And and in the meantime the um uh, the French got in, just to sub up, there's a better account in the book, got in with the troops, the reinforcements, uh, with the uh, guns, the siege guns and other uh, supplies, etc. And basically defeated the British at Yorktown. So by the time the uh, by the time the London and uh, Graves and the fleet came back, all was silent. So is that a, is that a fairly potted summary of it? You think fairly easy one? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because I, I know Corn, Cornwallis was constantly writing to Clinton saying, "And where is the navy? When are you sending me reinforcements? When are we getting oh. out of here?" And Clinton kept saying, "Yeah, we're, we're working on it."
1: Yeah, we're working, we're on, it, working yeah. on
0: it. Yeah. And then the Royal Navy turned up and everything and the, 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 the French had gone because Cornwallis had had to surrender.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, I think people look back um, at the major successes of the Royal Navy in the wooden wall, the age of fighting style. And there are many and uh, normally and most of the time would have have the upper hand or the edge. Uh, it's, but it did suffer reverses, defeats and cock ups. And that was definitely a cock-up. And, I mean, you could call London the ship that lost America. It's probably going too far because she was Graves's flagship. Uh, but, I mean, I, I think basically, I mean, um, by then, Britain was, you know, exhausted with it all and uh, realising that it was not going to win. And uh, so I think it was just one more um, problem. Uh, and I said this in a book, just one more problem in that long conflict. And perhaps people didn't think that that battle um, on the 5th of September uh, 1781 must just mention that date that's the second battle of chesapeake mm. would have those consequences i guess so but it did uh, yeah
0: that that and the royal navy were also um blockading gibraltar or defending yeah. gibraltar yeah and blockading holland because we had the fourth anglo-dutch war so. yes
1: exactly um, yeah and that's the other thing um before london went off to um to uh the north america station she um went out part of a fleet trying to find the French and Spanish Anglo Anglo, uh, sorry, the combined French, Franco-Spanish, combined fleet, and as you say, at the time uh, Gibraltar was under siege, and and they were actually off Plymouth, had anchored off Plymouth, and were about to go try and go ashore in Plymouth, you know, and get and Devonport being the the main dockyard and naval base there, and take Devonport and say, well, look, you've got Gibraltar and we've got Plymouth and Devonport, so what are you going to do about it? Or as it was called then, Devonport wow. Dock. Yeah, and and the the only thing that stopped them. Because so the defences weren't too great um, in uh, Devonport, Dock and um, Plymouth. They were two separate uh, towns at that time. Um, and if they'd gone ashore, they probably would have managed it. Whether or not they would have stayed there is another thing. But they were defeated by disease and lack of supplies. So they, they eventually left and went to look for the British off the uh, off Cornwall or something like that. And uh, But the British didn't find them and they, they didn't find the British. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's another one of those episodes that is, perhaps doesn't get a lot of attention. But uh, yeah. that was before the uh, before Graves took the ships to um to North America.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH one dot com.
1: So, um I but it's interesting that uh, way before the uh, Second Battle of Chesapeake, and it's interesting, you mentioned that a bit about Gibraltar, uh, Chris, but in 1779 in August, after she left Chatham, London was part of a fleet that was sent to try and uh, find uh, um, a combined fleet of Spanish and French ships and failed to in the Western approaches. But in fact, they were actually off Plymouth um, at the time, which was not very well defended. And uh, the uh, Spanish and the French fleet... Uh, Dropped anchor and was going to send a sort a shore an invasion force and take Devonport Dock where the dockyard was and Plymouth as well Plymouth Town the, the harbour there, but they failed to do that because of disease and lack of supplies and so they went off again and uh, went out to try and find the uh, the British in the south that approaches but it's terrible weather and they didn't so that was 18, uh, 1779 uh, before yeah. um, uh, London was the flagship of of, of Graves but anyway that's a digression.
0: But after after the War of Independence, she does have a, a role in the the uh, Napoleonic War and comes up in quite a few of the major battles. She was at Copenhagen, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, uh, London was the flagship of the Royal Navy fleet that was sent to the Baltic with uh, second command was somebody called Nelson. And um, he was sent to the Who? Baltic. I don't know. He was just a, a minor officer at the time, and um, but he he had the frustrating experience after um, his great, you know, and illustrious um, exploits in the Mediterranean of being uh, subordinated to um, this uh, rather sort of um, elderly—not that that old, but you know, sixty-four-year-old—not uh, by today's standards, sixty-four-year-old admiral called uh, Sir Hyde Parker who was uh, described by somebody as kindly, fussy, stout, rubicund, and very rich. And he looked more like a yeoman farmer than a naval officer. And um, <laughs> his main problem was he couldn't take a decision. And so he he had this fleet gathered and uh, in English waters. And Nelson was a fire eater and wanted to get on with uh, going up to the Baltic and uh, taking out uh, the uh, Danish, Swedish, and Russian fleets because they were cooperating with Napoleon. Uh, and it looked like they might make a move against England to help him invade and attack England. To, to keep it simple, uh, the League of Armed Neutrality was part of it as well. And it was all about supplies of hemp and wood that the, na- the, the raw Navy needed to keep going, etc, etc. And, and and Britain was very much dependent upon trade with the Baltic. But, you know, Nelson being a fire eater who'd had a, an, an astonishing victory at the Battle of the Nile... And, um, you know, mm. other exploits, uh, you know, the uh, Battle of Cape St. Vincent as well, uh, was not very happy about uh, being subordinated to this, this, um, this jolly, uh, and not very dynamic and indecisive Admiral, uh, Hyde Parker, who had his flag. This is where I come back to HMS London, he had his flag in HMS London, so the 98th yeah. HMS London. So, they eventually this guy was uh, motivated partly by, uh, People like Nelson and other officers complaining he was taking too long hanging around um, in, in English waters and more involved with his social life than getting on with uh, sorting out uh, the the Danes first of all and so they went off to uh, to attack uh, Copenhagen with a fleet and London stood off with Hyde Parker aboard and watched as Nelson took charge basically and went in to the shallow waters and 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 locked. Horns with the the Danish Navy, which was quite an impressive force at that time. And also, uh, never a great idea, but he tried it, uh, bombarded shore batteries in, you know, fortifications. And Nelson um, looked like he might be losing uh, the battle um, and and in trouble. So, and this is where we come to the famous bit, which some of your listeners obviously won't know about. And so there was this famous signal uh, sent to Nelson uh, saying that uh, basically uh, you may uh, disengage uh, if you wish, or you know disengage the battle. This was by the admiral in London, and Nelson um, did that bit where he just basically uh, put, allegedly put his uh, telescope to his blind eye and said, uh, and uh, there's more detail in the in the book, but you know I don't see the signal, I can't see that damn signal, to paraphrase it. Yeah. So he carried on with the battle and won. And then went across to see Hyde Parker later and presented this victory to him. And um, Hyde Parker said, well, actually, I was just giving you the option. You know, if you needed to, you were in trouble, old boy. You know, and I'm, I'm sort of uh, boiling it down there. But I mean, and he soon was, um, was you know, appointed somewhere else and Nelson took over. Uh, so that's a very famous um, Nelson turning a blind eye, you know, a nosonic eye. I think that's, that is used uh, maybe to this day as a, a way of saying that, you know, commanders in... Uh, in navies or wherever, sometimes would we'll ignore orders and that's where it comes from. Um and yeah. So that that that, that was a notable exploit. And and that, that London actually was more I would say more in action during uh smaller battles with French warships um during her career than with uh in fleet actions, to be honest with you, apart from obviously playing a role as a flagship. Yeah, and so for that London, although flagship at various um, notable events, you know, Chesapeake and, and uh, Copenhagen, it was the smaller actions in pursuit of the enemy. The sort of classic thing that you read about in uh, Patrick O'Brien's uh, series about Jack Albury. Mm. Um, and one of those was when uh, London, um, in October 1782, in company with a 74-gun ship, the Torbay, and a sloop called H. was Badger, chased... Uh, the 74 uh, gun French ship uh, Sibyl, and a frigate called Scipion in the Caribbean uh, of San Domingo. And it was a running fight that went on um, for hours and hours from the early early part of the, the day right into the night. Uh, and London sort of hung on tenaciously and yawed uh, as she pursued Scipion uh, uh, to, to present a broadside and attacked um, the French ship uh, with all, all her firepower. But and this is the thing I wanted to mention because I wouldn't want people to think that the HMS London of the Napoleonic Wars didn't see a lot of action or suffer at all. But uh, uh, uh Scipion uh, managed to rake London, Uh and, oh, yeah. yeah, and 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 in the night, uh, and that killed a hundred men. So as you know, that amount of you know it, Scipion managed a broadside right the way through the weak stern of uh, London. You know, the carnage would have been mm-hmm. absolutely unbearable and terrible, catastrophic. So that was one. Uh, bloody fight in 1784 but then uh, she had another action against the Marengo in 1806 which was um, off the Canaries when the Marengo the Marengo uh, 34 gun ship was coming back from commerce raiding in the Indian Ocean in company with another ship the Bell Pool 40 guns and they thought they'd come across a convoy uh, that they would pounce on but in fact it was HMS London along with the 80 gun Foudroyant and a 38 gun frigate the Amazon and so and there were five more British warships coming up so the the French sort of uh, to their misfortune a bit off more than they could chew and that was quite a uh, uh, an amazing running fight and it was the battle started at 3am in the morning and it just carried on um, and in the end the the um, uh, the uh, The Amazon chased down the Bell pool and the Marengo uh, was surrendered and, and in that earlier mm. fight with Ascipion in fact Ascipion was uh, ran out of powder after raking London and then was chased uh, the following day and tried to find shelter in a bay uh, in a Caribbean island and ran aground and that was the end of her so uh, those sort of actions um for that london that those two actions were were more the sort of um, pulverising Jack Jack Aubrey uh,
0: kind of uh, story for that ship. Anyone who's seen me on Twitter knows that I'm constantly going on about, and I don't like this word, but pre-Dreadnought battleships. And we get another, we get a a modern HMS, I'm going to say modern, modern HMS London, which is actually the lead lead ship of her class in in the late Victorian period. And they go into the First World War and everyone goes on about how pre-dreadnoughts are obsolete and, oh, they're not going to do it. But actually pre-dreadnoughts do a hell of a lot of fighting. Right. And yeah. H- HMS, do, in fact, more fighting than dreadnoughts do. There, I've said it. Yeah, no, oh, no, you're, you're, right. Uh,
1: you're right.
0: You're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, and our London actually has quite an eventful career in the First World War, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the the, eight, the eighth London, you know. Uh, there's some dispute about how many Londons there are. I mean, some, some say 13, some say 12. The next one is going to be the 12th one. So this one was the 8th one, um, in my book anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, as you say, it was incredible, isn't it, that they do they do get maligned and um, um, relegated, don't they, to the, the boring, you know, they didn't do anything thing. Um, and, and the 8th was, as you say, lead vessel for class, uh, subclass, because, um, I mean, I, I looked yeah. up a figure, which I'm sure you know, between 1892 and 1908, 51 so-called pre-dreadnoughts were built for the Royal Navy. Um, and so London was what the um, the leadership of a subclass of three with bulwark and yeah. venerable. And I mean, From when I yeah part. yeah, and when you think of of the fact that with um, Dreadnought herself coming along in 1906, the ship that supposedly made the all these other vessels, these uh, battleships um, obsolete, and uh, and then led to another fleet, uh, the the um the um what should we call them the superstars that people like to talk about most the uh, the super yeah. dreadnoughts and the the dreadnoughts themselves um that um we also had um all these other vessels and as you say they did a lot um i mean london uh not armed as not as heavily armed obviously as as the dreadnoughts and the super dreadnoughts but you know uh four what 12 inch guns but loads of 6 inch and loads of other vessels which made them as you say as you suggested, very useful for all manner of roles, and um, they did a lot of good stuff. And I mean, initially um, in World War One, and and it's it's interesting to me. And I'm going to digress just for a second here. What makes me laugh, or not laugh, but I think you'll find quite interesting, um, is that the pre-dreadnought London, this allegedly old um, Victorian Edwardian type battleship, in uh, just before World War One, was one of uh, a few pre-dreadnoughts that. Uh, undertook trials with aircraft flying from mm. uh, the tops of turrets or or for, forksals, forecastles, and London did that just before uh, the First World War. So in a way, uh, although Dreadnought made London obsolete um, in many ways, London then took part in the uh, early trials for naval aviation, which would lead to carriers, which would in turn make... Battleships of the super dreadnought and dreadnought class obsolete. So she, in, in essence, started the process of ending the ones that tried yeah. to, that replaced her and of gained all the headlines. But as you say, they did a lot. And and London, uh, was in the channel fleet to begin with, uh, which was uh, off which was either at Sheerness, um, or down yeah. at uh, mainly down da- or down at uh Portland. And th- their, their job was to basically one of their one of the jobs was if the uh, German high fleet came south was to sacrifice themselves in some sort of mad uh, attempt to stop them and so uh, they did a lot of exercising and sometimes too sometimes too much and there was a famous incident on new year's day uh, 1915 when london was in company with other battleships pre-dreadnoughts of the um, of the channel fleet and u24 uh, came along and uh, sank uh, the formidable uh, which was actually sailing yeah. in this was off uh, off Dorset, and so that was a big, big shock to them. And of course, an even an, an even bigger shock, or a, a, an earlier shock, at the end of nineteen fourteen was the the blowing up of HMS Bulwark, and that was a thing as well during World War One, wasn't it? People's ammunition blowing up That's ships' right. ammunition, yeah. Um,
0: so yeah. they're all yeah. buried across the road from
1: me. Are they what from the There's, bulwark?
0: Yeah, well, I've, yeah, I've got. Um, I'm pointing out the window. No one can see this, but uh, <laughs> I lived next. I live opposite Woodlands right. um, Cemetery, um, yeah. and they've got all the sea- they've got most of the they've got all the ball. Well, I say all the ball, what they could find. Um, yeah, of- yeah, all buried there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that happened on the uh, twenty sixth of November, and 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 as was quite typical at the time, twenty uh, sixth of November, nineteen fourteen, and that was quite typical at the time. Spies and saboteurs were were uh, suspected, and it wasn't the case. Yeah, it was. Uh, and 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 uh, one of the key players, if not the key player, I've got in the book uh, about and which gave uh, amazing insights into life at sea in a pre-dreadnought uh, in action was um, a midshipman Charles Drake, who um, who who was uh, assigned to London and went there at uh, you know as soon as war I broke out. and Stayed with London for years, and he he he, he gives an entry where he says that. Um, uh, 26th of November, in, in his Midshipman's journal, he says, at 8am Bulwark blew up, being completely destroyed by the explosion. When the catastrophe occurred, I was reading a signal exercise, I think he means book, on a port boat deck and had my back turned to the bulwark, who was our next astern, so right behind the London. And he says, mm-hmm. I experienced a, a slight shock coupled with a blast of hot air, and on turning saw a vast flame as high as the main truck around which thick smoke was forming, and he could see debris in the air and And then there was uh, another uh, more explosions. And he said later, having gone out to pick up the dead in a small boat uh, from the water, uh, that uh, and he was a he was a witness at the inquiry as well that was held um, Mm. aboard HMS London. That they might have kept the finding secret, but he thought uh, he confessed that he thought, um, you know, it, it wasn't saboteurs, and it and it was probably negligence as against enemy agents Um, and and that would be somebody tossing a cigarette down an ammunition hoist or being otherwise careless but um anyway yeah i mean having survived or seen that um and then uh dodge being sunk by a a u-boat off dorset london went to the dardanelles you know hard-working vessel sent there and that that was that was a um a part of the war that claimed quite a few pre-dreadnoughts to, to, by U-boats, sunk by U-boats. But others were um, claimed um, by mines or, or damaged or um, sunk by mines. And the French were there as well, of course, with their, their equivalents. Um, and um, London was expected to uh, go on bombardment runs down the Dardanelles to try and help clear away the guns, um, the Turkish guns that were along with mines, preventing the Allies from getting through to Constantinople and taking Turkey out of the war by bombarding or and or capturing Constantinople. And that then would free Russia uh, to receive uh, reinforcements and supplies, but also export stuff as well and keep Russia's war um, going against the Germans. And that was very much in the Allied um favour because they wanted to break the stalemate on the western front and they thought if they got through and took Russia out of the war then that would uh, perhaps help um divert the Germans um, I mean I'm simplifying it and so yeah. i, I yeah. think yeah because i think people don't quite understand what gallipoli was all about do they or the dardanelles they, they kind of it's all a bit mysterious to them isn't it
0: yeah, yeah everyone gets sort of uh, um gets hooked up on like anzac cove and the and everything but they don't yeah the whole reason for us being there which was that Churchill hadn't learned anything from history because in the Napoleonic Wars they tried it and it went badly. But if they'd knocked Turkey out of the war, the British would have got the oil from um, Mesopotamia.
1: Right.
0: Turkey armies that were holding the Russians down in the Caucasus would no longer be there, and the Russians could then all concentrate on the main front. It, it was mass, It was a massive, massive endeavour. And yeah. to quote um, Darkest Hour, if it actually worked, <laughs> it would have been a serious operation. <laughs> yeah
1: and i mean they didn't i mean at that time when we think about amphibious landings now and there's amphibious ships you know landing ships that can disgorge troops in landing craft and um, and also um armored fight you know, amphibious armored fighting vehicles etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know assault carriers that's the modern navy but this was um early days pre um, pre all that and so london actually was one of the vessels that landed uh, australians um at, at anzac cove and they used their own mm. boats, their own small boats, with the the, the troops packed into them, uh, in late April, uh, 1915. And um, and you know, midshipman Drake and others actually saw uh, this this happening, and uh, they they did hope they'd get um, an element surprise when they went ashore, uh, but they didn't. And uh, as soon as the enemy saw them, they opened fire machine guns uh, and rifles. And then come the daylight, the uh, the artillery started in. And so that became quite a desperate fight for a toehold there. And London stood offshore and did her best with her own guns. But the, the thing that was re- remarkable for its, I would say, incompetence, but lack of foresight, um, yeah. was the, the, the care of the casualties, you know. And so midshipman Dray is being sent, and other midshipmen, and other young officers are being sent in in their boats uh, amid the shrapnel and, and the bullets to to evacuate uh, uh australians uh, and of course all, all the way along because we must not forget the new Zealanders, the british the newfoundland mm-hmm. troops the french all along french, all yeah. of these massive landings but you know obviously we just talk about anzac cove and he was absolutely um horrified by the fact that they had very few hospital ships which when they were full would then go back to Alexandria, not many of them would come back, and there were lots of casualties being treated aboard. Again, another role for the pre-dreadnoughts, with n- with not much yeah. medical care for them aboard the pre-dreadnoughts and other vessels, and uh, so that that was something that he said was one of the the biggest scandals. And I think the the incredible thing about when when you do research, as I'm sure you're aware, and you find eyewitness accounts, and I've got plenty of those in the book, is you get a, a, it changes your perspective from something that's a cold or an academic study. Of a disaster or or a tactical or whatever it is problem, and then you get the the, the worms' eye view, the midshipman, the junior officer, the junior rating yeah. who says, you know, who's actually going in there in this instance to to get casualties off the beach Anzac Cove as the the the, the Australians are pushed back against the sea, and he said um, he said that he uh, and this is what he, he said in his diary. He said, the question of accommodating the wounded became more pressing. Transports were hurriedly turned into hospital ships. And the London self took in 79 serious cases in addition to our own casualties um, from the boats, from the small boats were going in to get the wounded. And he said he was uh, he expresses his anger at the conditions. But the but the most um, and he says that uh, the most damning thing, he says that he said that the, the boatloads were transported from the beach and they had to go and take the casualties to to vessels that were already full of casualties. And, and he said that it was one of the big carefully concealed scandals of the Gallipoli campaign was, the, was that. But one of the most remarkable or uh, one of those strange ironies of war is that he actually went aboard a ho- hospital ship with his um, his casualties. And they, the nurses mm. there invited him to have some breakfast. And so he was able to sit in, in a vantage point, probably in, in a mess or on the upper deck, having breakfast, while he watched HMS London being shelled uh, by, by the oh, Turks. Wow. And the shell spouts were going up around his own ship, which was uh, was then got underway. And you could see officers and sailors running in frantically along the deck. And they just managed to avoid getting hit by some of these shells. So I think it's when you get the perspective of um, a lad as he was, uh, watching watching things from different perspectives, that I think you get to convey
0: um, the horror of war and also the, the fine detail. Absolutely. It's, um, well, as I was reading the book... Um, we, we both do the same thing because I, I write from the, from the sailor's perspective as well, because yeah like you said, it, it nothing gives you a more, a, sh- a ship is a ship. It's, you know, it's made of its keel, you've got your guns, you've got your armor. It's a ship. But What makes the ship? Just, God, I sound like Captain Jack Sparrow. um But what makes the ship for me is <laughs> the crew and the crew's experiences and what the crew go through. And so to, talking about the 18th of March or the Glib yeah. campaign, or even um, I've got one for the, sinking of hms goliath and it was of a young 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 sailor on board it was like the whole experience of get, being woken up in the middle of the night and shit, oh crap we're sinking yeah. and of course not many people survived that so it's, it gives you such a really interesting like he's describing as the ships rolling over you could hear all the crockery smashing against the wall and it's just amazing yeah,
1: absolutely absolutely no you're absolutely right and um You know, that's those things. I mean, there was um, uh, one of the other pre-dreadnoughts there, and I've written another book called The Deadly Trade, which has all these U-boats attacking pre-dreadnoughts. But one of the remarkable accounts I found was from an Australian soldier who was um, on the beach, um, this was obviously some time later, on the beach uh, watching, um, um, because they they were seeing the the Navy offshore as their their guarantor, their insurance. And then they were watching as these pre-dreadnoughts were sunk. And keeled over, just like you've just described. And the feeling of despair when the, the warships had to be withdrawn back to um, a safe harbor um, was quite profound. And uh, yeah, as you that, say, that, that was
0: um, majestic, I believe. I think that yes. was majestic. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I yeah. don't, you know, I'm trying to remember detail in another book now.
0: <laughs> but yeah, no, that was, oh. they,
1: were, they were incredible episodes as well.
0: Yeah. Quickly moving on before.
1: <laughs> yes, no, digressing. <laughs>
0: Uh, oh, no, it's good. I, I'm enjoying it. Um yeah, I don't good. get to talk naval history. My, my kids look at me and go, oh, dad, not again.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. They tolerate us, don't they, talking about uh, naval history. But we realise we soon have to move on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, my middle son's quite into it at the moment, but uh, the other two just glare at me. Uh, Ian, this has been awesome. It's so good to talk to, like we said, it's so good to talk to another naval historian. But it's so good, in fact, that we've gone on far too long. We're going to have to come back for a part two in a few weeks where we can uh, we can talk about more HMS London shenanigans going into into war, World War II and beyond. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.